If you'll join with me, today's scripture reading is from Lamentations 2, 1 through 5. In our Pew Bibles, this is page 686. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord is swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruin its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, you, you all can be in prayer for uh, a bunch of guys that are still at the men's retreat in Mount Hermon. Um, I think it ends later this afternoon. And uh, glad to see all of you with the time change. It's uh, still early for you, or you're okay? How's everyone doing with uh, their, their Lent tools? Not, not good, huh? <laughs> How's the fasting going? No, no. I have to admit, the first service much better than you. There's a lot more nods. This one seems to be more of these. How's, how's uh, prayer? We'll talk more about that in this sermon. Uh, the reading, how's that? How's... Chapter 3 is tough, huh? It's long. But, I mean, I guess all these chapters are kind of tough. You're like, man, this is dreadful reading. Like, this is horrible. But hopefully it's like ministering to your heart. And, and the almsgiving, I um, want to also kind of encourage that a lot of folks especially say service industry hospitality industry kind of getting hours cut right now and who knows what happens in the future so if you can be a little bit more generous with that gratuity go for it anybody work in that industry we all know right we've whoever's worked there we appreciate those things but um you don't have to tell anybody it's almsgiving it's a gift so um, Lamentations 2, I have to confess um, and preface before I even talk about any of this. It's not one of the things that I find joy speaking about, even though I, I realize that it is in the scriptures and that's why we cover it. There are some of you who are going to expect me to be a little bit more angry because this is talking about the Lord's anger. Um, and you might be disappointed, and then there's the other spectrum of it where you're expecting this to be a little bit more encouraging and joyful, and it's going to, I'm going to say that I'm probably more in the middle. Um, so I'm going to make everybody unhappy. So that's essentially what happens. Like, I don't make everyone happy, I make everyone unhappy. But just to preface this uh, sermon with that, because there are some things that Christians shy away from talking about, and one of these things is anger, judgment, and that's what Lamentations 2 is talking about, and it's something that makes a lot of us uncomfortable, me included, 
Um, it's not something I like or find joy in that God judges. Like I, I, it's not something that I am happy about, um, even though I, I know God is good. And I, I submit to him being sovereign and in charge. And, and I read here that God has this emotion of anger. And there really isn't a way to get around it. Because if you read chapter 2, it's actually really, really evident that he's angry. And so we see this anger of God with how the Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem, Judah, and the aftermath of God's wrath in 587 B.C. is all over Lamentations chapter 2. And that God said it would be like this. And what would happen if God's people despised, rejected his laws and his commandments. And so let's look back at that reference back in Leviticus chapter 26, starting in verse 27. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. So happy, huh? But the whole point of Lent is to purpose our heart towards Easter. And so hopefully Lamentations directs our heart in this way. And Leviticus 26 as the background, that is indeed what happened in 587 BC with the Babylonian exile and captivity. And the anger of the Lord was evident as it was written at the start of Lamentations 2, it starts it out in verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. And then it ends chapter 2 in verses 21. You have killed them in the day of your anger and 22. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. And so we see in chapter 2 the introduction and the conclusion of that chapter sandwiched in between are these verses in between speaking of the Lord's anger because the people broke that covenant with the Lord that was spoken about in Leviticus 26. Now in verses 1 through 9, it's very descriptive of the Lord's anger. And there are over two dozen violent verbs that God enacts on his people. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 and just kind of highlight those verbs for us just so that we kind of get that feeling, that description of the Lord's anger. Verse 1, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up Without mercy, all the habitations of Jacob, in his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. 
He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden. Laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of the festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. That's a nice portrayal of God. And yet God is the subject in all of those verses that he is the one acting. Very evident that he is really angry. And he's relentless in his anger, in his wrath. Now why is this even important? It's really important to recognize that there's always an underlying reason for anger. And just like for you and and me, there's a, a reason, there's a cause as to the anger. And so there is a reason God is angry. The anger is the emotion, but there are things that cause the emotion. And so for the Lord, it's the guilt of his people that is causing this anger. That unless his people deal with this guilt, then there is no hope for them in the future. There is no life for them in the future. That this godly anger in dealing with this human guilt is necessary. And for us, we can't soften that divine anger towards human guilt. And to soften it, or to ignore it, or to like brush it under the rug, would actually be quite dishonest. It would actually be quite cruel to do so. So often, we as the church, we as Christians, we, we want to more talk about the mercies of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the acceptance of God, and many times those come out across in sappy, cheesy worship songs um, or even sermons. And how often do you hear about churches talking about the anger of God? It's just not a great way to build a church, right? Like, you want to grow the church? Hey, let's talk about anger and let's talk about judgment. Like, it's, it's counter to everything that anyone does consulting for church growth would tell you. Don't talk about those things. But it's in the Bible and we can't ignore it. It's here. And so how often do churches just conveniently skip over things? And so how often do we talk about the wrath of God, the judgment of God? How often do we talk about how God deals with that guilt and yet 
here it is. And we are needing to get a complete picture of God. And yes, God is love. But we have to get the complete picture of that and that we can't cheapen that love. And so let's turn to Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16, to help us get a more comprehensive look at the love of God. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And we all know people like this. People who actually seem to be like really, really good people. People who are for social justice. People who take responsibility in our uh, political system and they vote. They are polite and they have manners and, and they, yet they don't take into account God at all. It's just more based off of who they are and who they think a good person is. And you look at them and they actually seem to be doing quite well in life with a good job and a nice house and a nice family. They're, they're healthy. Things seem to be going really, really well for these people who don't know God. And yet they're still held accountable to God. And yet there's never been given a thanks to God, even though they have so much. That God, the giver of good gifts, has provided so much, yet not an ounce of honor, not an ounce of thanks have been given to God. And I think there is a tad of wickedness in that neglect. And even though they they may be polite in this paganism, would God be just in his wrath toward those who do not honor him or give thanks to him at all? In Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul wrote about God's anger towards pagans. And then in chapter 2, it switches to those who are religious and that those who are religious aren't living up to their profession of faith. And then in Romans chapter 3, the wrath of God is revealed to everyone. And this is written in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
These are beautiful words of life to people who would otherwise face the wrath of God. And so we pull out these beautiful words like justified, redemption, propitiation. But this beautiful picture of life from Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 3, verse 24 that we just read begins with Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You get the grace because of the judgment. And we all have to take into account the justified anger of the Lord upon guilt. And no one is innocent. We see the guilt of humanity and we see the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1 through 3. We see this anger, we see this wrath in Lamentations 2. And this anger matches the guilt. And we see the anger in verses 9 through 17 with these pictures of anguish in verses 9 through 13. And here's the first picture in that latter part of verse 9. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. So there's no spiritual guidance. There's no direction or vision from God. They're, They're completely lost here. They have no clue where to go next. Verse 10, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads, put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. So... They know nothing else to do but to be in this miserable state, in anguish, that they're helpless. They're so distressed. And the people who are supposed to lead them out of it can't. Verses 11 and 12, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like wounded men in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. And so here's the third picture here, and I don't know if any of you are confused by this too, that a a baby or a toddler is asking for wine, but anyway, that's just a separate thing. Back to a more serious note. These people are totally emotionally depleted. And then the author switches to the first person and he says, my. And most scholars believe this to be the prophet Jeremiah who's here living through this. And he's painting this really, really sad picture because can it get any more depressing than a child dying of starvation in the lap of his, her mother. And then this frustration in verse 13. What can I say for you to what you compare, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? See, nothing, nothing can be done. This is an unconsolable situation. And here are these pictures of anguish. And then this picture of people unable to see. Verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. And so their their leaders are unable to see the truth. And we saw this when we studied the book of Amos. 
If you don't recall, you can go back into our archives and listen to the book of Amos. But in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, this is what is written. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. One of the ways judgment is brought about from God is that people can no longer hear from God. That they can actually have these very words on the page of their Bibles in front of them and read them as words, but they won't hear from the living God as to what they really mean to them, which seems to be the case here in Lamentations. Sure, there was the prophet Jeremiah, but no one listened to him. And there were others who shared words to probably try and help, but what they had to say was false, and it was misleading, and they said nice things. They said encouraging things, but what they didn't say were things to expose their iniquity, to restore their fortunes. See, they said things that people wanted to hear, rather than saying the things that God wanted them to hear. And we see this happening even today with this coronavirus that we're dealing with, where people are coming out that countries have been withholding information, and there are conspiracy theories as to what our country is doing as well, and not getting news out there fast enough, or withholding truth, suppressing truth, or not being completely truthful, misleading. And this happened in Jeremiah's day with this prophet named Hananiah. You turn to Jeremiah chapter 28, starting in verse 2. And this is Hananiah speaking, and he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now we know from history, this is completely false. There was the Babylonian exile, there was the Babylonian captivity. And then he continues with this, Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. He's going to do this. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. You see, we have this false teacher saying things that are false. Hopeful, encouraging, Lifting everybody's spirits and saying, but it's just a complete lie. See, telling people what they want to hear rather than what God really had to say, because he can point back to Leviticus 26 and say, that's what God said. And I know it's tough to swallow, but that's what he said. And he hasn't spoken to any prophet about how I'm going to do this in two years and all this kind of stuff. And so I think a lot of churches are in this boat teaching things contrary to what the Bible teaches. And I'm not saying that our church is the only one that does it right or that we're even doing it right at all. And I'm not saying that, you know, what is spoken here from me or any representative of the church, that we can't be wrong because we are people. And the things we say can be wrong. And I just encourage you, like the Bereans, to study the scriptures for yourself and find out for yourself the Holy Spirit is real and God is living and dynamic and he speaks through you and wherever I'm wrong, point it out to me and we can talk about it. I am convinced there are churches teaching things for the sake of being nice and accepted in the name of tolerance rather than teaching what the Bible teaches. 
And in order for us to experience restoration with God, we have to expose the iniquity. We can't pretend. We can't pretend something isn't there and not deal with the truth. We can't ignore cancer. We can't ignore a disease that has been diagnosed upon us and not treat it. Because if there's no attempt to expose that deadly truth, there's no hope for restoration. We have to expose iniquity in order to restore our relationship with God. Then, if we're looking at things, we have to ask ourselves, is this judgment from God? Exposing iniquity doesn't mean an absence of comfort. See, when someone is diagnosed with a life-threatening disease by a doctor, it doesn't mean that there's no effort from the healthcare team or, or persons or that person's support network to encourage and comfort that patient, right? We, 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 even though we expose these things, these iniquities, we still have the comfort of the gospel, of Jesus Christ, of Easter, which is what we're preparing our hearts for. We still have that comfort and that hope, but we do need to expose those things that are killing us spiritually, to expose that pride, to expose all those false motives and intents and whatever those things are holding us back. We need to lay that bare. And our church needs to be like a good hospital that correctly diagnoses what is wrong. We need those good CAT scans and lab results and x-rays that give us the truth, not just what we want to hear. Right? Hospitals, doctors that suppress that truth or just give us what we want to hear are not good for us. And the word malpractice comes to mind. Yeah? Like they're not doing their job. And then the bad news in Lamentations 2 doesn't just stop there. It actually keeps going. Verses 15 through 17. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. And so verses 15 through 17 are the response of the enemy. They're, they're cheering at the demise of Judah, Jerusalem. What, what do these verses say to us? Well, verse 17 is a summary of verses 9 through 17. Let's reread that. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. Leviticus 26. And here's the thing. The Lord is faithful to what he says. He is faithful even in his judgment. He is faithful in his anger. And what God says, he does. He's faithful to bring judgment, Leviticus 26, and he does what he says, which is actually where our hope is found. Because if he is faithful to everything that he says including his judgment. God is also faithful to everything he says in regards to restoration, grace, mercy, love. 
He is faithful to all of it. So you look back to Leviticus 26 at the judgment and at the anger, and let's continue Leviticus 26 down to verse 44. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. See, God is faithful to everything he says. Not just the judgment and the anger, or not just the deliverance and the restoration, but for all of it. God is true to what he says. Look at Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And so we read of God's faithful judgment and faithful grace at the same time there in Revelation. And so a question for us to, to think about, could we ever experience the grace of God, the mercies of God, if there was no judgment, if there was no anger? How can we have the comprehensive love of God if we don't have the judgment or the anger? How can grace be experienced outside of judgment? And so let's look at the last five verses, which is a response to God's anger. Verse 18. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. And so verses 18 and 19, after all that devastation, this is a call to prayer. All that tragedy. And you're thinking, man, you're just going to tell the people to pray? Is it that simple? You see, prayer is the only appropriate response for a completely broken and desperate people. It's the only response. We do hear people say things after a tragedy like, I don't want your prayers. I want us to do something. I want our government to do something about it. I don't, I don't want, prayer's cheap. It's just a bunch of words to an imaginary God and all this. And then you have all these sorts of things going on. I want to know if anyone in a third world country ever said that. Because I think it's only first world people who say such things. Who think, oh, I can throw money at it. We can throw our government, we can throw our military, we can throw whatever, we can throw our, our votes, our democratic votes behind it. We can, that's a first world problem I think that they're talking about, no prayer. When you have nothing, you don't have a vote, you don't have money, you don't have a military, you have nothing. What else can you do in such desperation but to pray? It's the only thing. Put yourselves in the shoes of those in the Babylonian captivity and exile in 587 BC who have become a slave race, pulled out by their noses in fish hooks, 900 some odd miles across the desert, given new names, made to worship new gods, everything stripped from them. There's nothing else to offer but prayer. And this is what they offer. 
Verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? And the only petition in this prayer is to look in verse 20. They don't even ask for deliverance. They don't even ask for things to get easier or anything like that. They're they're asking God to look and see. And it's a repeated prayer that we read from Lamentations chapter 1 and in verses 11 and in 20 that the simple petition is, God, look, O Lord, and see. And the rest of the prayer is just describing these siege conditions. Look at verse 20. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care, which happened? Which also happened in Masada when the Romans took over, that parents were eating their children after they died. Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie young and old. My women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. So he's just describing what took place. Now, why do this? Why is the author doing this? I mean, God already knows all of this stuff, right? Why? Why so descriptive? Well, it's very much like the Psalms. You see, when you read the Psalms, the Psalms are just kind of recording what's going on, pouring out their heart, letting God know what's going on. And so when we look at things like the Psalms, you'll notice there's a lot more written to describe what's going on than anything else. And so the question still lies, like, why, though? Why? If God sees all of this, then why? Because there's an assumption behind the prayer. Those prayers that are just simple and raw, it doesn't have to be something that is just like the greatest speech of all time, which I think a lot of people try to do when they're praying in groups, right? They make it, I need to sound eloquent, and I need to sound right doctrinally, and I need to use the right words, and I need to pray in the right order. When we listen to people that we love, do we need them to talk to us in a certain way? Do I stop my daughters when they've had a really bad day at school because they've been picked on or they got a bad grade or whatever, and do I need to stop them and say, like, no, 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 first address me as father, and then you can ask, and you can talk to me. Do we do that to the people that we love? Do we, do we say, no, no, it has to be a certain order. You have to tell me what, what you did wrong first, and then you have to thank me, and then you have to, like, do we have, like, a certain cadence? No, like, if there's those boogers coming out of their nose, tears coming out, and they're just like, oh, I hate life. Oh, and they're just, like, telling me, that girl, she did this, and she cheated, or, like, whatever. She's just, like, blubbering, and they're just telling me what's going on. We just simply listen to the people that we love. We just listen. We listen without even thinking or doing anything for them. We just want to listen to them. Just, just tell me. Tell me. Tell me everything. And this takes a lot of practice, especially for dads. Like, we want to fix stuff, right? Like, who's that kid? I'm going to go talk to their parents. Who's that kid? And it just takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of discipline to, to 
listen reflectively and to ask good questions and like, tell me more about that. How do you feel about that? And like, pour it out. Like, let me, let me hear you out. Those are the things that we do with people that we love. We don't try to fix them, pull them out of their situation. We don't, we don't do those sorts of things. We, initially, we first just listen and we let them get all their stuff out to us. In the Bible, you'll notice that God is a fantastic listener. He listens all the time. And those who pray to God know, we all know, that we can, we can itemize all of our misery, all of our pain, all of our suffering. We can tell him all about it because it all matters to him. It's what any good parent does. We listen to our kids. But we also, as good parents, we discipline our kids. And that same person who disciplines their kids also loves their kids. We do all of that. We're actually no different than God. We are imitating God, aren't we? And for those who know God, we know that he listens. We know that he is faithful to what he says, whether that be in discipline or in restoration. And so this prayer makes this same assumption. This prayer, as well as all these other biblical prayers, assume that this misery that we experience matters to God. And that misery opens the door to God's mercy, grace, compassion, that it's the same God. That in the midst of disaster, the best hope is to pray. Praying with the understanding that that hand of discipline from God, the hand of judgment, the hand of anger, is the same hand that gives us grace, compassion, love. It's all the same God. So as our hearts are preparing for Easter, part of this prayer here, as you open it up, is look, O Lord, and see. It's not necessarily asking God to fix anything or to reveal, to reveal to us things as we share with him what's going on in our hearts. And I have to say, like, this has been a very tough discipline just to kind of focus on, Lord, look and see. And I've noticed that as I'm sharing things that are going on in my own family, my extended family, in our city here, in our state, in the, in the world with what's going on and putting those things before God, that as he's listening, I'm also getting this heart of gratitude, realizing the grace portion, how much God has provided, how much God loves, how much compassion he has. Like Those things are opening up as I just simply share. And just as you guys are reflectively listening to people in your life, they tend to have some self-revelations, don't they? They start talking and they start noticing things. They start seeing things differently. And you don't even have to counsel them on anything. You just have to ask them for clarity or like tell me more about that. And they start talking and then light bulbs start clicking on their own. And that's essentially what this prayer is. Like, Lord, look and see. And then you'll start seeing things yourself. So I encourage 
us to do this. Let's pray. Lord, look and see what each individual is going through here. Lord, look and see what our church is going through. Lord, look and see what our city, what our state, what our country, what our world is going through. Please speak to us. Please don't bring a famine where we cannot hear you. In Jesus' name, amen.